you go, go ahead and open up your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 1. As I said at the beginning of the service, uh, over the last several weeks, we've been reviewing our vision statement as Northside Baptist Church. What does it mean for us to be a church of the living God? What is our purpose? What is it we're trying to accomplish? And uh, about three years ago, we adopted this statement, and we've taken the last few weeks to kind of refocus our attention and, and uh, to try and focus our attention not just on the statement, but really on everything that we do, understanding that we, as God's people, have purpose. We're not just here to, to uh, meet and greet. We're not just here to, to uh, fellowship with one another. We're not just here in, because it's just what we do on a Sunday morning. I mean, those things are good. We ought to come and in fellowship, we ought to be encouraged, we ought to have relationships within the church, we ought to, you know, come together and sing songs, but all those things are great, but they have to be undergirded by a larger purpose. They have to be undergirded by what it is the Bible says that we're supposed to be doing and what, who we're supposed to be as God's people. And so our vision statement is an attempt to, for us to look at what Scripture says and kind of encapsulate for us as a church what it is we are to be doing. And so we've been looking at our ultimate purpose is the glory of God. We see that in our, in our statement. But then we have these objectives. Well, let's first, let's look at the statement again this morning. It's printed in your bulletin. It should be up on the screen behind me. Northside Baptist Church seeks to glorify God by exalting the Lord Jesus Christ empowering his church and engaging the culture with the gospel in our community and around the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our primary purpose is the glory of God. We've said that week in and week out over the last several weeks. God, everything that God does, he does for his own glory. He has created us for his glory. He saves us for his glory. He's instituted the church for his glory. Because God is so supremely concerned about his own glory, we as his children ought to be concerned about his glory. And so in everything we do, we're seeking to glorify God. And we've identified three objectives, three pursuits, if you will, that, that we look for in seeking to glorify God. First of all, we exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, it says that God has given him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The exaltation of Jesus Christ. We also look at our second objective, which is the empowering of his church. That is the building up, the edifying, the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry is in accordance with Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. We as his people are in the business of encouraging one another, building up the body of Christ so that he will be exalted among us and God will be glorified. Our final objective is what we're going to be looking at this morning and that is that of engaging the culture. But of course, you know our statement doesn't just stop there. We engage the culture with what? With the gospel, right? in our community and around the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And pretty much that whole statement, as you'll see, comes to us out of Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Because that is 
the Great Commission given to us by our Lord right before he ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1 gives us this final scene with Jesus and his disciples before he ascends. I want to ask you to stand with me this morning in reverence to the reading of God's Word. I want, to, I want to just read to you really the first 11 verses, although we're only going to focus on verse number 8 this morning, but just to keep it in context and so you can get the full picture of what's happening. Acts chapter 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, we receive your word this morning as it is, not the word of men, but the very word of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive instruction from this word that we might be conformed to the image of Christ, that He would be exalted in us, and that the gospel might be proclaimed in His name. Amen. Now the book of Acts is written by a man by the name of Luke. Luke wrote, of course, the gospel according to Luke, also addressed to Theophilus as we saw in chapter 1, verse 1 there in Acts 1. And Luke is an interesting character because if you consider, Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician and a historian, but he was a Gentile. He was not Jewish by nature. And yet, with the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, this Gentile author accounts for more content by volume in the New Testament than any other writer. Now, we know the Apostle Paul wrote a lot more books, but his books are short. Luke and Acts are huge. And so Luke accounts for more than, like I said, more than any other writer by volume in the Scriptures, which is a testimony, really, to the work that Christ accomplished and the power of the Gospel, which was to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to the whole world. And as Luke is speaking to us 
and, and is writing this account down. He had, he had spent much time traveling with the Apostle Paul. Actually, as you read through the book of Acts, you pick up on those, those journeys and those things that he did with the Apostle Paul. He spent a lot of time interviewing the disciples and talking to people in, in and around Jerusalem and, and the surrounding area from which he compiled the gospel according to Luke under, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he gives to us this accounting in which we see the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ after his suffering, after he's been justified, after his payment has been made in full for the sins of the world, Christ preaches and proves himself to be resurrected from the dead. He preaches the gospel to his disciples and then he gives them the instruction to carry the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world. The last thing on Christ's mind before he went back into glory was the salvation of men and women throughout the world. It was his primary concern. It's why he came. He came to save sinners. He came that we might be freed from the bondage of sin. And so he wants us as he, even as he directed his disciples, he wants us to know the significance and the importance of being witnesses for his name. And as we look at our final objective in the, excuse me, our final objective in our vision statement that we are going to engage the culture with the gospel in our community and around the world by the power of the Holy Spirit, this is where that is derived from. That the Lord Jesus has given us this commission to carry out this work and to preach the gospel. It's an interesting thing when we talk sometimes about a commission. And, and we talk about the great commission that Christ given. But commission isn't a word that we hear about a whole lot. We typically think of a commission as something that, that um, someone receives in sales, right? They receive a commission. This is not that kind of commission. This is, this is a commission that someone would receive in the sense of um, uh, years ago when I, when I first got out of college and I went to work for Tennessee State Parks as a park ranger, I received a commission from the state of Tennessee to enforce the laws of the state and protect the resources of the state in our park system. That was a commission. It outlined for me a responsibility that was in place upon me to carry out. So our commission is, first and foremost, a responsibility. But just as that commission that I was given by the state of Tennessee wasn't only a responsibility, it also granted me the authority to carry out that work, so also our commission from the Lord Jesus Christ to spread the gospel to the uttermost parts of the world isn't only a responsibility, but with it, he grants us the authority to carry it out. So when we think about the Great Commission, we are thinking about the responsibility and the authority to carry the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the uttermost parts of the world. And as we focus on that charge this morning from verse 8 in Acts chapter 1, I want to share with you three aspects of our commission received from Christ Jesus. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the proclamation of our commission. And then I want to share with you a little bit about the parameters of our commission. And then finally, I want to speak to you about the power of our commission. So first of all, let's look at the proclamation. In verse number 8, it says here, it says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my 
witnesses. Christ commanded us to be witnesses for him. Now that word witnesses, it's a, it's a fascinating word. In the Greek, it's the Greek word martis, where we get the word martyr from. Now typically, when we think of being a witness for Christ, we don't necessarily think of ourselves as being martyrs, right? Why not? Because martyrs die, right? And that's not, our first, that's not our first thought when we're thinking about witnessing for Christ. We're not thinking, I'm going to my death for Christ. But the reality is, is when you look at this, this word in the Greek and you understand how it's applied and that Jesus says, you will be my martyrs, you will be my witnesses, he's, of course, speaking prophetically in a sense, but I think the word martyr has give, been given its meaning because of the witness of the disciples and of the apostles. And, we, and as because they did go forth. They did carry the gospel. They did carry forth the word of Christ. And they did die for what they proclaimed. They did die for it. Why? Because they had followed a man for three years. They had seen him perform miracles and signs and wonders. They had heard him proclaim to be the Son of God. They had watched him do miraculous things and make, make bold predictions and bold proclamations about himself. And they believed him to be the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And when he was crucified, they didn't know what to think. They wondered if they had put their faith in the wrong person. They were fearful about what might happen to them. And yet that same Jesus, whom they saw crucified and buried, rose again the third day, declaring victory over death and affirming that everything that he had told them was the truth. And so what choice did they have? If you know somebody that's been risen from the dead, are you going to believe what they say? he says he's the son of God and he dies and is raised from the dead you're going to believe him even if it means your own life I'm reminded of Stephen one of the first deacons in the early church the church in Jerusalem you get on later into Acts chapter 7 6 and 7 and we're introduced to Stephen and uh, it says Stephen was a preacher of the word full of grace and truth. He performed wonders among the people. And he was brought to trial of sorts. <laughs> and as he was brought to trial, he proclaimed the gospel. And in so doing, he gives us a picture of what it means to be a witness for Christ. Acts chapter 7, verses 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. He testified of Christ, even unto death. Now, we don't think a lot of times in our day and time about being a martyr, not especially in our culture and in our time, but I'll tell you, there are around the world martyrs for Christ every day. One of the uh, 
publications that I read, Voice of the Martyrs. If you haven't ever checked it out, I would encourage you strongly to check it out. We have an, we have an event coming up here in a few weeks, Secret Church. Um, and uh, during that event, we're going pl- to be praying for persecuted Christians around the world. People are still being martyred for the name of Jesus Christ. And we don't want to tell people about Jesus because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to tell people about Jesus because we... We don't, want to, we don't want to be rejected. And yet there are people dying for his name. You know, the reality is, is when we think about being a witness, if you've been saved by the blood of Christ, if you are truly a Christian, you are a witness. The only question is, what kind of witness are you? How effective is your witness? You're either a good witness or a poor witness. But you are a witness. If you've named the name of Christ, you are a witness. And I would think that we would all want to be effective in that witness. The proclamation of our commission is that we are called to be witnesses. But we need to ask, witnesses... To what? I mean, the the disciples, they witnessed the resurrection. They had the most powerful testimony that could be imagined as, as they had seen the risen Christ such that they would go to death proclaiming salvation in Him alone because they knew it to be the truth. If they had just made it up, I mean, you've got to think about it, okay? This whole thing started with them. If they made it up, they're not giving their life for it but because they knew it to be the truth. Because they had seen Jesus after, not only seen Him, but had touched Him and handled Him and eaten with Him and fellowshiped with Him. And they knew it to be the truth. And they were witnesses of His resurrection. But is that what Jesus was telling them? To, to go and to testify of His resurrection? Well, certainly in part it was. But it's not all that he was telling them, because certainly that wouldn't be a commission that would carry on beyond that first generation of disciples. Because they were the ones that were the witnesses of his resurrection. But we still are witnesses of Christ. Not of the resurrection, but of the power of salvation. Of the reality of all that Christ had done. Remember the the disciples, the resurrection was the evidence that what Christ had done and what Christ had said of himself was true. And so that same proclamation is given to us that we might proclaim the truth of who Jesus was and what he said of himself. In Luke 19.10, Jesus said this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's a testimony that there is a, a sense of lostness in the world that needs to be rectified. Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do. He goes on, we're familiar with his own testimony from John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. See, this is the proclamation that Jesus gives to us of himself. 
And now we are called to be witnesses of that reality. He proclaimed in his life were evidence to be real and right and true by the power of his resurrection. And so we have been tasked with the responsibility of taking that same reality, that same truth, and proclaiming it to the world around us. We People need to know that they're lost. We live in a world where people think that they're good people. And we tend to think that we're not really, that sin's really not that big of a deal. We tend to think that, you know, nobody's perfect, so if God is, is loving, then he really just doesn't care that much about sin, that he just kind of overlooks it. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that because we're sinners, God has hidden his face from us and he does not hear our prayers. The Bible tells us that sin brings a separation between us and God. So the proclamation that we give to people, first and foremost, must be the law of God. People need to know that God is holy, that God is righteous, and that God is deserving of worship. People need to know that God has called us to worship Him, but because of our sin, we are unable to approach His holiness. Sin separates us from God. We must preach the law, but we must not stop there. We preach the law so that people can understand the condemnation that they are under because of sin. We preach the law so that people can understand that they are deserving of what Jesus suffered on their behalf. We preach the law so that people can know that God is holy and they are not. But then we preach to them grace. We preach to them salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We let them know that God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to be a substitute for our sin. We preach to them the reality of Christ on the cross whose blood alone was able to satisfy God's just cause against sin which is why there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved but in jesus christ alone because christ alone satisfied god's wrath against sin on our behalf that is our proclamation that's what it means to be a witness for christ to testify of God's goodness and glory, of our separation and sinfulness, and of salvation in the name of Jesus. That is the proclamation of our commission. I want you to see also the parameters of our commission. He tells us here in verse 8, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. We don't think about this too much, but this was a challenge to those disciples. Think about what Jesus has just told them about where they're to go and they're to proclaim this gospel. Thank you, brother. Where they're to go and proclaim this gospel, they're, they're to go, first of all, to Jerusalem. 
Well, think about that for a minute. Jesus was just crucified there. And they're supposed to go back? The authorities would not look kindly on their arrival preaching Jesus. And the disciples are like, you've got to be kidding me. And then he says to go to Judea. Well, that's okay. That's, we can, that covers a pretty large area. We can get outside of Jerusalem. We can preach there. But he says also Samaria. Well, Judea and Samaria represent essentially what would be the united kingdom of Israel before it split under, after Solomon's reign. And the Jews weren't too fond of the Samaritans. I said, those Samaritans, man, they didn't, they didn't keep their blood pure. They, they defiled themselves with other people. They're, they're, they considered them half-breeds. I mean, they just did not like the Samaritans. Like, you want us to go there? And then beyond that, you want us to go to the Gentiles? To those heathen people that worship other gods? There, I mean, there's some obstacles to be overcome as the disciples are hearing this. They're, they're like, how in the world can we carry this out? But the reality for us and that we need to understand is, first of all, they recognized the challenges. But when the Spirit came, when they received the Holy Spirit of God, they embraced those challenges and carried out that work in Jerusalem, and in Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. In fact, if you, you look at this here in, in Acts 1.8, and, and you see that layout, and then if, if you realize that it actually provides an outline for the whole book of Acts, because the rest of the book of Acts is the unfolding of how that happened, how the gospel was proclaimed in Jerusalem, and then in Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And it shows us how, how they fulfilled this commission that Christ gave them here in the very beginning. And we think, well, well, great, so they did it, so what does that have to do with us? Well, because beyond just being an outline for the way things were supposed to be going, it also provides for us a, a guide, a template, if you will, for how we can do missions ourselves. The parameters of our commission. How do we begin to engage the world with the gospel? How do we engage the culture? First of all, we have to understand that missions begins at home. We have to start in our own Jerusalem. We have to start where we are. You know what? If, you're, if you don't do missions at home, then you're not going to do them effectively if you go anywhere else. The carrying out of the Great Commission has to be a part of a part of your ongoing relationship with Christ, your ongoing service to Him. You have to have a desire to reach people with the gospel, not just around the world, but beginning in your own community, which is why our statement says that we're going to engage the culture with the gospel in our community and around the world. Why in our community? Why is it so important to begin where you are? Because that's where you are. That's why it's important. You spend the majority of your time planted in a particular location. You have your job and your family and your friends and your schools and, and you have your networks and, and all of these things. And those are all opportunities for you to carry out the proclamation of the gospel. As the Lord brings people into your life, we, we must seek to engage them with the understanding of the gospel. And then from there, 
we go into all of Judea and Samaria, that is, to the nation. Do you realize that the United States of America has the third highest population of lost people in the world? When you think about the countries of the world, we have the third highest population of lost people in the world, which is devastating because we have so much access and so much availability, but the reality is, is that so much of our nation has either neglected the gospel or abandoned the gospel. And so that there's very little witness of the gospel in many parts of our own country. You go up into the northeast, you go out to the west coast, you go to the east coast. The gospel is lacking in other parts of the world, in other parts of our nation. We have to recognize that reality. Even in our own community, there's lost people all around us. We were at a, at a meeting several weeks ago, and uh, our association director had, had told us something, was it 80%, 87%, 86% of the population of Columbia, Murray County, is lost, unchurched. They, they're, they're not engaging in the gospel. Folks, this is, we, we live in the last stronghold of the gospel in our nation, okay? You, thought, you think about the, the South, this is the last stronghold of the gospel in the nation, and it is being neglected, tremendously neglected. We have a responsibility to reach people with the gospel in our community and in our nation. That trip to O'Fallon, that's a great opportunity to engage in one of the just out in O'Fallon is just it's a it's a suburb of St. Louis. It's a great opportunity to engage people with the gospel. We need to have a heart for reaching people around in our community and around the world. Because the world, the uttermost parts of the world, I mean for if you think about it, we are the uttermost parts of the world from Jerusalem. Right? The disciples got their marching orders and they said, You're gonna go to the uttermost parts of the world. That's here. All right, so we're going to start where they were trying to get to, and we're going to work our way back because we need, we need to go to the world. And the reality is, is there's a lot of places in the world, while we might have the, the third largest population of lost people in the world, there are some places in the world that have little to no gospel access at all. There's some places in South America, some places in Africa, some places in Indonesia, um, in Southeast Asia. And, well, Asia, I'll just take Asia as a whole. There are some places that the, you just can't, you can't hardly get the gospel in there. But by God's grace and provision. Because, well, I'll tell you what, in some of those places, people are afraid of the gospel. Which is why they kill the Christians. Which is why they torture and, and hurt those that try to bring the gospel to them, which is why they close, they close their borders to keep the gospel from coming in. Now, I understand we can't all be everywhere. We can't all be involved in, in, in directly in missions all over the place, right? I mean, we want to be. We ought to want to be. 
Because this isn't an either-or thing. This isn't we either do missions locally or we do it globally. No. We should be pursuing missions locally, nationally, and globally all the time. And we have to seek to be engaged in different ways. Because we can't be everywhere. But you know what? We can pray for missionaries. We can give to missionaries. And we can make plans to go as those opportunities come available. And we want to make sure that we are doing that. And, I, and if you've never been overseas on a mission trip, if you've never been to another country on a mission trip, it will change your life. There, there is nothing that can even compare to it. I've, I've been to India on a mission trip. I've been to Vietnam on a mission trip. Um, my family, uh, my, my wife and my daughter, my wife's been to Africa and Costa Rica. My daughter's been to Africa. Just... Ian's been to Africa. It will change your life. We're looking for opportunities to, to go and to do things, and, and we're, we're trying to. We have ongoing opportunities every week here at our church. Monday nights we go out into our community to re, try and reach people with the gospel. Um, we have special outreach events to try and reach people with the gospel. Our Easter egg event, our Easter egg hunt that's coming up. That's an outreach to try and reach people with the gospel. Listen, get involved with missions. Get involved with the things that Christ says are so important for us to be doing. This is the direction. This is where we begin. <clears throat> There's always going to be challenges. There's always going to be difficulty. But this is what Christ has called us to do. Finally, I want to talk to you about the power of our commission. Because while I can emphasize to you all day long of the need to go and the responsibility to go and of the directive to go, if, you try, if we try to do anything in our own strength, we're going to fail. We can try and accomplish a whole lot in our own strength. And we can look like we're making progress. But you know what? If we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. We're just spinning our wheels. The Bible tells us that if the Lord doesn't build the house, those who build it build in vain. We need the strength of the Lord. Which is why Jesus actually starts there. We're ending with it this morning. But Jesus starts there in the Great Commission in, in verse number 8. He tells them, there, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. Jesus told them earlier on that, that, he, would, that he had to ascend, he had to go to the Father that he might send the Holy Spirit. But from the time of Pentecost until now, the Spirit comes upon everyone who calls upon the name of Christ for salvation. Paul told the Romans, he says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. So you know what that means? If you believe, you have the Spirit. If you've believed, you've received the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says it this way, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise 
of his glory. We are given the Spirit of God so that God will be glorified through us. And what's our primary goal? The glory of God. We're given the Spirit of God so that God's glory. How is God glorified? By the proclamation of his gospel. We must be empowered by the Spirit in order to carry out the work that he's given us to do. The Spirit is a special gift of God. It is the person of Christ who has come to indwell us in order that we might serve his purposes. In the book of Acts, I'm sorry, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6, it tells us that to each one is given the manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the common good. That is, the Spirit comes into us as believers in order that we might serve the church to carry out the empowering of the church that we talked about last week. Because when we talk about the power of the Spirit, we're not talking about it just for the proclamation of the gospel, but for everything that God has given us to do. When we look at our purpose statement, or our vision statement, we're, when it says that we do this by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about all of it. God will not be glorified except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ will not be exalted except by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church will not be empowered except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we cannot engage the culture with the gospel except by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are completely and utterly dependent on the power of the Spirit working through us so that we might understand and know the Word of God, so that we might be able to proclaim it to others and so that they might receive it. You see, we can preach the gospel all day long, but unless the Holy Spirit opens up someone's heart, they're not going to believe and they're not going to receive it. The Bible tells us that the things of God are spiritually discerned, that the natural man cannot understand it because they need the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, it is that teaching and the empowering that prompts us to share with others, understanding we are desperately dependent on the Spirit to guide us. The Spirit opens our eyes. The Spirit gives us boldness. The Spirit gives us understanding. The Spirit calls to remembrance the teachings of Christ in order that we might share them with others. And He grants to us understanding of His Word. When Christ, the version of the Great Commission given in Matthew 28 Verses 18 through 20 begins this way. It says, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What I want you to notice in that passage there is, first of all, that Christ says all authority has been given to him, And then he ends with saying, and I will be with you. And how is he with us? By the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers us to carry out this most important work. Witnessing to others of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done is not an option. You can't just choose to do it or not to do it. If you have named the name of Christ, you are his witness. The question is, how effectively are you engaging the culture with the gospel? Are you being a good witness, or are you being a poor witness? And then the second question 
which would you rather be? Because we can be a poor witness today, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be a better witness tomorrow. Maybe you've been a poor witness. Maybe you haven't carried out, and hey, listen, none of us have carried out the witness of the gospel the way that we should. Because we're still weak. Because we try to do so many things in our own power. Because we, we allow the, the difficulties and the hardships of life to, to squeeze us and to, and to make us think that we don't have time and to burden us with all these other things so that we, don't, so that we think we, we can't do it. Listen, we, we've all been there. We've all felt that. But by the Spirit of the living God, we can be better witnesses than we have been. We can carry out His work. All I'm asking for you today is to be honest with yourself about where you've been and where you want to be. To open your heart to the Lord's leading and to let Him guide you into all truth. Maybe for the first time you've just realized I don't have the Spirit of Christ. I've, I don't I've never sensed that newness. I've never sensed that regeneration that comes in salvation. Maybe you need to be saved this morning. Or maybe you just recognize, you know what, I've not been all that Christ wants me to be. I, I know of his saving power. I've experienced his forgiveness, but I just want to be a better witness for him. Listen, you can, you can come to him and, and he will strengthen you. You know, one of the most powerful let me, let me reword that. A lot of times when we pray, we don't always expect a whole lot. And I think a lot of times it's because we pray and we don't always see things happening the way we want them to or the way we think that they should. But I'll tell you what, you pray for power to witness to others of the glory of God and of the gospel, that is a prayer that God will answer. Because God wants you to proclaim his name to others. You pray for opportunities to share the gospel, God's going to bring them your way. You pray for boldness in those times, God will encourage you and help you to do that. He is faithful and he is worthy. Let us pray together this morning. Father, I thank you so much for the challenge that you've given us I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that lie before us all around. Lord, as we look at the world around us, we see a people running from the truth of the gospel. People trying to suppress the scriptures and the truths that they contain. People abandoning hope in anything other than humanity. Father, let our hope never rest in our own objectives and in our own strength. For by our own testimony, we know that we are weak and that we are often wrong. But your word is true and your power is real and your spirit is calling. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts to hear that calling this morning. That you would call us unto yourself, Lord, 
we might know you more fully. For the believer who's walked with you for many years, I pray that you would renew in them a passion to serve and to make your name known. For those that have been walking for a short time, I pray that you would continue to encourage and conform them to the image of Christ, that they might also, Lord, grow in faith and understanding, that you would make them more powerful witnesses. And Lord, for those listening this morning that have not known the power of salvation, They've not known what it means to be a new creature in Christ. They've not experienced forgiveness of sin. I pray, Lord, that you would call them to yourself to a time of repentance and that you would grant unto them faith that they might believe and be saved. And, Father, that we would understand that reality of lostness and the hopelessness that it accompanies that. And that as we look at the world around us, we would recognize our responsibility and the authority that you've given us to speak truth into their lives, that they might receive eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray.